Good evening to everyone in Jesus' name. Greet you in his name. It is a blessing to be here. I've enjoyed uh, looking around a bit and seeing some familiar faces. Some of you ministering brethren, I know. And um, I am with you in heart and mind and spirit. I know what it's like to uh, labor long and hard with uh, the sheep in the flock. And sometimes they're doing well and sometimes... There are struggles, and I know all about the nights when you might lose sleep. And I'm thankful that on an occasion like this, ministering brethren can come together to encourage each other in the word and to be re-inspired to carry on the work. And we remember that these are very important times, and Christ has called us to feed the flock, which he has purchased with his own blood. So we're thankful for these times of inspiration, and I hope that this evening can continue uh, the blessings that you all have been able to receive this evening. I'm also glad to see some uh, fellow Christian Light uh, co-staff members here this evening. It's great to see you here. So this evening, our topic is Christ-centered theology, and we're reminded that the words of Jesus and his teachings are very potent and they're very powerful, and they're very uh, pertinent for our day. And just reflecting over the Sermon on the Mount and considering my own life, I was very convicted that I'm far from living out the teachings of Jesus. I have not nearly arrived. And the potency of Matthew chapter 5 gripped me again this evening as I considered my own life against the teaching and the example of Jesus, and I'm realizing how far I'm falling short. So I really do invite your prayer. I'm not worthy to really stand here and bring this teaching on Christ-centered theology, but we want to do the best we can. So I want to consider six points this evening, and the first two, uh, I warn you, are going to be the longest. So I think the last four will go through a little more quickly. I want to consider a Christ-centered theology. Excuse me. Thank you, Brother Shannon. Christ-centered theology as an exegetical lens through which to interpret the rest of Scripture. And then Christ-centered theology, number two, acquired through a living experience with Jesus. We need a heart theology, too. And then it finds Christ at the heart of the Old Testament. And fourthly, Christ-centered theology is a theology of noch foga or following after. We need a walking theology. Fifthly, Christ-centered theology leads us to theocentrism. And finally, Christ-centered theology, where does it begin? So the first point I thought would be easiest to talk about in the form of a story, Christ-centered theology as an exegetical lens through which to interpret the rest of scripture. So it's 1984 and we're down in the country of El Salvador, and they're in the middle of this civil war. The government forces are battling that guerrilla group, the FMLN group, and there are seven newly assigned military policemen that are riding on the back of a blood-encrusted pickup truck, and they're heading back to the village of Suchitoto, back there in the heart of the conflict. 
a very dangerous place to be. So these policemen, military policemen, are heading back there to join 70 or 80 other government uh, officers that are sent there to protect this village, Suchi Toto, from guerrilla attacks. And as they're bouncing along in the back of this pickup truck, they learn why they are being sent and what had just happened. So guerrilla forces had just attacked the village and they had killed uh, five of these military policemen and had kidnapped two of them. And they're riding in the back of the pickup that had just carried these five dead policemen. And they're going back to take up their place in, in the ranks of those military policemen. So you fast forward a couple of weeks, and here we have one of those new arrivals. He's 23 years old, and he's sent on guard duty to the perimeter of the village, I think it was. And over his shoulder is a German-made G3 semi-automatic that shoots three-inch cartridges designed to kill people, of course. And he's got a hundred of those cartridges around his belt. He's got 500 more cartridges in his knapsack. So, but instead of standing guard, this military policeman, he pulls out a chair. He loosens his belt and he sits down with this gun across his lap instead of holding it at the ready. And he's sitting there and he pulls out a book and he starts reading a book. And strangely, this book is a Spanish translation of a book that Christian Light sells, Coals of Fire. It's a book about stories of non-resistance, a collection of stories. So picture this scene. This soldier is in a remote area in El Salvador, under threat from the FMLN, and he's on sentry duty, reading a book with his rifle across his lap, reading a book on non-resistance. So suddenly, though, the young man stiffens in shock because just above his belt on his right side, he feels the thrust against his body of a military bayonet kind of knife behind him. A stealthy gorilla. Well, what in the world was this young man doing out here in the jungles of El Salvador on guard duty reading Coals of Fire? Believe it or not, it's a story of Christ-centered theology. So as a young man, as a young boy, this, this young man had gone to Sunday school and he heard the stories of Jesus from a faithful missionary, a woman who loved this boy. But this boy took his own way and eventually joined the military in his country and he eventually found himself in this village of Suchitoto as one of those replacement officers. And after he was there for just a few weeks, he got a two-day leave and he went back to his home. And he came home and his mom told him that, hey, this missionary woman has invited us over for supper tonight. And he didn't want to go, but out of respect for this woman, he went. And while they were there, 
She was true to her calling, and she answered the call of the Spirit, and she pled with this young man right then and there to turn his life over to God, to repent of his sins and give his life to God. And he resisted that. He didn't want to change his life. But the woman pled with him, and the Spirit of God did his work. And later that evening, that young man did surrender his life to Christ as a soldier, military policeman in the El Salvadoran army. The next morning, early, he went back, took that dangerous village back to the, that dangerous ride back to the village of Suchitoto. And that evening, he went back out, put his uniform on, and went back out on sentry duty. Immediately after he got back from his patrol that night, he went straight to the lieutenant and he confessed Christ to him and told him that as a Christian, he could no longer serve in the army. And his superior was, of course, shocked because there was no provision back there in 1984 for conscientious objectors in the El Salvadoran army. Back in the day, you often had men forcibly conscripted right off the streets. They just went out there, the army did, seized men right off the streets and took them into the army. But he was there in front of his superior and his superior said, do you have a Bible? And the young man said, no, but I have a New Testament. Go get it. So he went and got his New Testament and he handed it to his superior and his lieutenant opened it up right to Romans chapter 13. And he pointed it out and said, look here. The Bible says that, that policemen are ministers of God, which means you can be a Christian and you can still serve in the military. Now, this young man was a believer less than 24 hours. What was he supposed to do? Well, he had his theology right. He had this Christ-centered theology, and his response was, yes, sir. That's what Romans says, but Jesus taught us to love our enemies, and here we are killing our enemies, and I can't be a part of that. That was his answer. Christ-centered theology. And his testimony was so convincing, and his Christ-centered theology was so persuasive that his superior eventually approved his release and he won his release on the grounds of his religious convictions. And his honorable discharge seems like nothing short of a miracle back in 1984 in the middle of that civil war. That young man's name is Lancho Ramos, and he happens to be my brother-in-law. Uh, he married my wife's sister about two years ago, and Gloria and Luncho are members at the Weavertown Amish Mennonite Church in Lancaster. And many of us know that dear sister who taught that young boy Christ-centered theology in the Sunday school class. Her name was Verda. Verda Glick, the wife of Eli Glick. And that evening, as Luncho sat there in Suchitoto, reading coals of fire and feeling that knife in his back. He didn't know if he would live or die. Fortunately, it was just his superior, his lieutenant, 
and he was out to scold him, and he said, why are you sitting here reading this book? You should be standing up and guarding. And so Longshore was always respectful, and he stood up and said, yes, sir. And he said, sir, if I would shoot the enemy and one of them would see me do it and then shoot me, my soul would go to hell. So he had his theology straight. But then later, after Lancho moved back to the States, he was talking to a co-worker who agreed with Lancho, former commander. His co-worker said, well, you could have stayed and defended your country. You could have done that as a Christian, is what his friend in the U.S. told him, who was a, who was a evangelical believer. I think we should pray for that friend and for all of our friends who name the name of Christ, but who put nationalism ahead of Christ-centered theology. And maybe we should also pray for, for we ourselves in our own churches, sometimes we're tempted to take part in um, the welfare of our country, aren't we? We're in election year. What should we do? Should we go to the polls or shouldn't we? Well, of all people, uh, there was the theologian, R.C. Sproul, uh, he had it right, and we don't agree with his theology, but on this point he had it right. He said, a ballot is a bullet. And he got the idea that to vote for one's representative in government is just, is not too far removed from actually defending one's own government. And he said, a ballot is a bullet. And he wrote that in his book on abortion. I don't have the, I can't cite the reference exactly. But we're talking about Christ-centered theology as an exegetical lens for interpreting all of Scripture. And Lancho didn't base his decision there on what King David did in the Old Testament. He didn't use Paul as a commentary to interpret Jesus. He didn't allow his love and loyalty to his native country to overlay the clear teachings of Christ. He went straight to Jesus' teachings. He made his decision based on Jesus' Radical teaching. Sir, Jesus taught us to love our enemies, and we are killing our enemies. I can't be a part of that. It was that simple. Christ-centered theology. When confronted with a crisis, Lancho had his Jesus glasses on, and he didn't know it, but he was using Christ-centered theology to interpret the rest of Scripture. He started with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, and that makes all the difference. And here's a quote from uh, Stuart Murray, by the way, I'm very indebted to uh, Stuart Murray's book, uh, Biblical Interpretation in the Anabaptist Tradition. You kind of have to watch him a little bit. He likes to hang out with people like uh, Denny Weaver, which we have a big problem with, I know. But uh, he's got a lot of good things to say here in this book, Biblical Interpretation in the Anabaptist Tradition. And here's a quotation here from page 74. Anabaptists generally began with Jesus teaching an example on issues and interpreted other passages in that light and in a way that did not conflict with it. Many of their disagreements with the reformers resulted from this procedure. On various issues from war and wealth to the nature of the church and the kingdom of God, Anabaptists who started with Jesus radically differed, reached radically different conclusions from the reformers who did not start in the same way. That's it right there. It's where you start. Those early Anabaptists taught that the words of Jesus were sunny and clear and the basis from which to interpret other passages. That's page 70. You must know that God spoke to the Jews. I'm quoting now 
uh, from Leonhard Scheimer, again on page 70. You must know that God spoke to the Jews through Moses and the prophets in a hidden matter. But when Christ came, he and his apostles illuminated all things with much clearer understanding. So the belief is that Jesus and the apostles now have a clearer illumination and we start with them. And here's what Sattler said, Michael Sattler. He spoke of the perfection of Christ, his words and example. And he said, I'm not aware that we have acted contrary to the gospel and the word of God. I appeal to the words of Christ. He said that it is trial. Here's what Menno Simon said. He emphasized Christ-centered theology to the extent that he put 1 Corinthians 3.11 at the beginning of everything he wrote. That was Menno Simon's, and I'm sure we can quote that together. Let's say it together. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He said further, no doctrine is profitable or serviceable to our salvation, but the doctrine of Jesus Christ and his holy apostles. And again, that's Menno Simon's on from where, why I do not cease preaching and writing written in 1539. How can we get these Jesus glasses on and how can we wear them? One, one way to do this might be to uh, go through the disciplines of absorbing the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever tried reading the Sermon on the Mount maybe once a day for 30 days or maybe reading through the Gospels several times a year? Another thing we can do as ministers, and we did this back at Pilgrim once, we should probably do it again. Divide up the Sermon on the Mount and do team preaching through Sermon on the Mount. Have your ministerial team each take a turn at a section and work through the Sermon on the Mount uh, Sunday by su Sunday. I'm sure some of that, something like that has been done. I think it's time we do it again back home. Christ-centered theology is acquired through a living experience of Jesus. That was my second point, and here we turn to, to Luke chapter 24, please. Christ-centered theology is really a matter of the heart in many ways. It's not just studying with our minds the words of, of Scripture, the text of Scripture, but it's meeting Jesus, isn't it, in his word. And here we have in Luke chapter 24, the very first graduating class on Christ-centered theology. It was a class of two. And we know that story very well. We have these two disciples I think one of them was Cleopas, and I'm not sure if we know who the other one was. He was walking back toward Emmaus the day that Jesus had risen from the dead, and there was this third person that comes along and walks alongside of him. We know that story. And he asked him, why are you so sad? And they said, you, you can't believe that you haven't heard what all has been going around in Jerusalem these last days. And they began to tell him what had happened with Jesus and the crucifixion and by the way, there's a report that he just rose from the dead. And then it says in verse 24, 25, now the master is speaking and they don't know it yet. He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There we have it. Christ-centered theology being taught by the master himself. And 
He went on with them, he walked with them, and he talked with them, and he tarried with them, and went to their house, and he ate with them, and he drank with them, and all the while uh, he was talking to them about what the scriptures had prophesied, or at least part of the time he was, and then, of course, when he broke the bread, then their eyes were opened, and he disappeared from their sight. You know, um, here Jesus taught them from the word. What was this word? The prophets, the Old Testament. The Old Testament was now opened up by the one who had fulfilled these prophecies. And he fellowshiped with them. And he opened up the word to them. They experienced the revelation of who Jesus was in fellowship with him, didn't they? And it was a paradigm shift for them as the scriptures were open to them for the first time. And it was a very profound experience for them because they said afterward, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? Shouldn't, shouldn't we experience this sort of thing? Maybe when we come together for our Bible studies that we call Sunday school, we come together and we have this anticipation that Jesus is going to teach us. He's promised to be among us where two or three are gathered. He is there. What will he have to teach us? Should we have a living experience with Jesus as we sit together? And then, of course, later on that day, uh, there was the second graduating class of of Christ-centered theology because those men uh, went and found the 11 gathered together there in verse 33 and them that were with them. So there were 11, these two, and them that were with them it had to be at least 15, maybe several dozen, maybe the 120. We don't know for sure how many were there. But once again, suddenly Jesus was there among them. And once again, he fellowshiped with them and he... He ate with them, he ate that fish, and he showed them his hands and his feet, and he was there among them. And once again, what happened, um, he said to them in verse 44 of Luke 24, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Once again, he appeals back to the scriptures and he opened up the scriptures in verse 45. He opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it is behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, I say that Christ-centered theology begins in fellowship, in living experience with Jesus. He wants to teach us about himself through his word. And what is it? If it's only head knowledge, what is it? It's really not worth that much. But we need the heart and the hand, head joined together by Christ himself. What would the Son of God wish to show us from the scriptures in a living experience with him? You know, sometimes I'm sure, that, I'm sure that there are these ordained brothers this evening here 
I venture to say that most of us at one time or the other have turned to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and we have appealed from that scripture. We have called our congregation to hear Jesus knocking. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Is it sometimes true of the shepherds themselves? Is it only the sheep that sometimes kind of shut that door and they need to be encouraged once again to throw that door open? Is it only the sheep who need that encouragement? Do the ministers and the shepherds sometimes need to be invited to once again throw open that door to this living experience with the Son of God who wants to reveal himself from his word to us? I invite you, dear brothers. We're in the harness and we get tired. Sometimes we live in our own strength. We've done this so long, you know. We can put a sermon together. We can talk to people. And it's pretty empty unless our Christ-centered theology isn't filled with his presence. So I invite you together with me to seek him once again, to throw open that door, hear his knock, and throw it open. My brothers, what good is Christ-centered theology if it's all in the head and not in the heart? Christ-centered theology is acquired through a living experience with Jesus and thirdly, it places Christ at the heart of the Old Testament. And I'm really excited about this because I'm making some discoveries at 58 years old that I wish I had made in my life previously. But Jesus taught those men in the upper room in verses 44 and 45. He taught them that the prophecies about himself were found in the law of Moses, they were found in the prophets, and they were found in the Psalms. And he taught them that in Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, you can find that the Messiah would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. If you read the new, the, some of the newer translations, they carry that thought all the way through, that all those things are found. Jesus said all those things are found in the Psalms, in the prophets, and in Moses. They're all there if you know how to discover them. And I suspect Christ himself uh, will need to reveal those things. And he did. And we know them now. Do you know all that the Old Testament taught about Jesus? I know that I sure don't. The treasure is inexhaustible. He was in the old concealed, but in the new revealed, as the old saying says. And what I'm discovering rather late in my life is that the Old Testament contains an inexhaustible wealth of truth about Christ. And since it is concealed, it needs some mining to get it out. But it's there, and the deposits are far richer than we can imagine. And hopefully there'll be a little bit more on that topic tomorrow evening. So Christ-centered theology as a theology of nochfoga, or following after. We need a theology of walking. What good is Christ-centered theology if it's all in the head and not in the heart and not in the feet? We need a theology that's in the heart and in the feet that follows after. 
And I think maybe this is the most important thing of all for us ministers who, who are around people a lot and we show people by our own lives what is really important to us. Those, those closest to us can know what we really believe. And you know, we all probably thought about this, but one thoughtless comment can undo a whole sermon in someone's mind. Yes, I believe that. And one significant failure can undo a whole ministry. And Paul exhorted Timothy to be an example of the believer. He said, be an example of the believer. Well, what kind of believer? Well, stop and think about it. That would be a believer in Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? Be an example of a person whose faith is fully in Jesus. Be an example of that kind of person. <coughs> By your life, be an example in word, in faith, in love, in purity. Be an example by your walk of life. And I say a, a walking, Christ-centered theology lived out well will be worth more in the church than a hundred sermons, than five years' worth of sermons. A walking, living theology that is like Christ. <clears throat> I remember a story from quite a few years ago when we were in Africa for a short time, there was a man who's one of my heroes. His name is William Andeo, and he is still a faithful deacon back there at the church in Okana. And when we were there, he had been a believer for just a very short time, and he sent his daughters to the village well with their jerry cans to collect water for his house. So they went out there with maybe two, three jerry cans, these like four or five gallon jugs of water. And they get in line, a uh, long line of people, a wait of maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Finally, it was their turn. They got up to the village pump and the man in charge that day was in a foul mood and he mistreated those girls and sent them back to the end of the line with the empty jerry cans. And they were upset because they needed the water. So they went back crying to their father, William Andeo. And he was upset. He was just a new believer. And the old life came back and he started off to that man's house. He was going to fight with him. And he started off, must have been a little bit later because he was still at the well at the time, but he started off to fight this man. And when he was on the way, he remembered the teachings of Jesus. His was a, a walking theology. And as he was walking along toward that man's house, he remembered that Jesus said, the, the preacher said that we're supposed to love our enemies and do good to those who use us wrongly. Oh, yeah, I should do that. So William Andeo turned around and he went back to his own house and he had a small business grinding maize for people and he took some of his precious inventory of maize and he headed back to that man's house and he handed that gift of maize to his dumbfounded enemy and lived out the potent teachings of Jesus. He got the satisfaction of heaping coals of fire on that man's head. And so the call to Christ 
The call to Christ is not just a head knowledge. It's a theology of no fogger, doing what Jesus would have done, a following after, a theology of the shoes. And here's another quote. Uh, it was by Cornelius Dick. He said, when the Anabaptists insisted on following strictly the words and example of Jesus, this was not easily understood or accepted. Most could think of Jesus as a dying savior or as a future judge, but not as someone to follow earnestly in life. That's the difference right there. Um, the reformers, and not to speak disparagingly, I'm just kind of contrasting, and I also don't want to say everything that reformed theology says is wrong. It's not. A lot of it is right. But one of the differences in emphasis is that there's a lot of emphasis put on uh, the right kind of doctrine, the right kind of uh, salvation formula, and uh, particularly from the book of Romans, and that's wonderful and good. But it can be a little bit one-sided if we don't have this theology of nofoga. And, okay, let me continue with this reading from Cornelius Dick. Most could think of Jesus as a dying savior or as a future judge, but not as someone to follow earnestly in life. The call to follow Christ in life might seem self-evident today, but for the Anabaptists of the 16th century, it was a rare and daring claim and a costly one for the, oath, for the path of Christ led to the cross. Now, here's another quote from Walter Clausen. He says, Jesus is all that the historic creeds claim for him, but he is also more, for he is also the example for the Christian. He's not only, uh, uh, he's not only a savior, and, and he not only fulfills, the creeds are not only about his work of salvation, but he's an example, Walter Clausen says. He's not only the center of a theological system to which one gives assent, Rather, he is the center of a new way of life. Jesus as the center of a new way of life. And that's what our early forefathers in the faith believed. That's what Lancho Ramos and William Andeo believed as new Christians. What do the modern conservative Anabaptists believe? What good is the right theology if it is all in the head and not in the heart and not in the shoes? Fifthly, Christ-centered theology leads us to theocentrism. And of course, the idea here is that theocentrism being uh, God-centered. The idea is that Christ-centered theology leads us back to God. It must. Does Christ-centered theology focus exclusively on Jesus? Well, we probably know about the fact there's a movement out there. There's like 27 million around the world. Uh, there's this theology that's been called the oneness of God. And the idea is that there is one God, his name is Jesus Christ, and we baptize in the name of Jesus only. And we, of course, would see that as Christ-centered theology to the, to the heretical extreme. Because Jesus came to take us back to God. He taught us to pray in his name to the Father. He came to do the will of his Father. He said that if we look at him, we see the Father. And Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's Jesus. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus came to bring us 
to God. Some phrases out of a favorite passage for us, I'm sure, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. If you want to turn there, you may just pass over a few of those phrases, wonderful phrases. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Yes, wonderful. That's wonderful. Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. But then later on in this passage, but all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And God was in Christ here in verse 19, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. We are called to be reconciled to God. And in the last verse, that wonderful verse in verse 21, uh, we have the amazing and wonderful privilege of being made the righteousness of God in him. And then we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul teaches this idea of theocentrism in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end when she, he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And in verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Christ-centered theology must, if it is biblical, lead to theocentrism. And then we can come back all the way to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 21, and we see here the, that God is at the center of everything. In Revelation 21, I, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Christ sat down, brothers and sisters, at the right hand of God. But he is Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Come to lead us back to God. Finally, where does Christ-centered theology begin? Now, there would be a lot of ways you could answer that question. And you, could, you, could probably, you should probably answer it by saying, well, it should begin right here in the heart and mind of the minister, of the individual believer. That would be correct. But I'm saying it this evening this way. I think that Christ-centered theology should begin in the gathered assembly at 9.30 on the Lord's Day morning, <laughs> Sunday morning. Now, maybe that's a little plenty cut and dried. But I think that Christ-centered theology should be emphasized above all else. It, that should be emphasized above all else on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, when Christ's followers come together and they believe by faith, as poor and weak as we are and sinful as we are, that by faith, he is in the midst of that gathered assembly. That's what he promised, where two or three are truly gathered in his name, he is in their midst, the resurrected one, and I think that we need to renew our vision for starting out the week 
I think we should revive our love and our devotion to the one who rose from the dead, who died for us and rose again on the first day of the week. I think Christ-centered theology in the church setting should remove, should, should revive our hearts at least once every seven days, shouldn't it? And hopefully several times in between. And I think we'd affirm that, that Jesus' followers should look back on his life and ministry on the Lord's day. They should look back at his suffering and death and what he has done for them. And they should look forward each Lord's day to his return. And in the present, they should realize his living presence among them being both comforted and convicted. And I think that every sermon that every minister ever preaches in some way or other should point to the Lamb of God, the one who took away the sins of the world and made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And every sermon should call us to follow Christ more perfectly, to obey his teachings and the teachings of his apostles as recorded in the scriptures. Because I think that Christ-centered theology on the Lord's Day will help our dear people with Christ-centered living Monday to Saturday. And I think that our goal for Christ-centered theology, I think it's to be a lens for the study of all scripture. And we want the study of Christ-centered theology to be a, an experience with the living Christ so that he is the, the theology of our hearts. And we want to see Christ at the center of the Old Testament too. And we want this theology to motivate us to follow him more closely, the theology of the feet, with the ultimate goal of leading us back to God forever. And until that time, we want to experience Christ-centered theology on the Lord's Day together so that Christ might be at the center of a new way of life, both in our personal lives and in our communities. May God give us a vision for this kind of Christ-centered theology. God bless all of you and give you a wonderful, enriching next several days.